Hello again, and Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Bible Backdrop Podcast, where we talk about the history and culture surrounding the Bible. I'm your host, Matthew, and I'm so glad you decided to join me today. A friend of ours just got engaged, and I thought this would be a great place to talk about weddings and marriage in the Bible, especially looking at the wedding in Cana, where Jesus performed his first public miracle. In many ways, marriage and weddings were very different from how we understand them today. First, most marriages were arranged. The vast majority of the time, young people did not choose their spouse. Marriages in Israel were always with other Israelites, with some exceptions, such as Ruth and Boaz, or for political purposes, such as Solomon and his many wives, and Ahab and Jezebel. Often, this led to problems as they did not follow the God of Israel. Solomon, as a result of his sins, had his kingdom torn in two when his son became king. Looking away from these exceptions and getting back to the everyday people throughout the Bible, this was the normal process for arranging marriages. It all starts with the father of the groom. Once a suitable match is found for their son, a friend who attends the bridegroom, sort of like a best man, negotiates on behalf of the father and prospective bridegroom with a representative of the bride's father. What were they negotiating? Two things, the mohar and the dowry. Both of these were compensation to the bride's family, but had different purposes. The mohar was the price paid to the bride's father and seems to be compensation for the loss of work that would come from losing someone in the household. Once a daughter was married, the chores that she did had to be done by the parents or by hiring someone. The mohar would help alleviate that burden. Now, it wasn't always paid in cash. Even though Saul's daughter Michal was promised to whoever slaved Goliath, when the time came for marriage, David still had to pay a mohar. By this time, David had lost favor with Saul, and so he thought to set David up to get killed. Instead of silver or gold, Saul asked for the foreskins of 100 Philistines, who were the main enemy of Israel at the time. He had hoped that David would die in the attempt. Instead, David brought him 200 foreskins. Not exactly the bride price I would want, but when you're the king of Israel, whatever works. What was the difference between the mohar and the dowry? Well, the dowry was kept by the bride's family in case her husband died or divorced her. It was to make sure that she did not descend into poverty where her only way to survive would be through prostitution. The mohar could be spent as it was meant to help the family carry on their household responsibilities, but the dowry could not be spent. If it drew interest, that could be spent on the household, but the principal could not. Later, it was a custom that part of the dowry would be made into a circle of coins that became part of the women's headdress and acted as a symbol similar to the wedding ring. As Jesus described in his parable in Luke 15, 8-10, the loss of such a coin was traumatic and led to the woman cleaning out her whole house to find it. It also explains her great rejoicing at finding the coin. Now that the negotiation is completed, an arrangement has been made, the couple were officially betrothed. Unlike today's engagements, betrothal was much more legally binding. Today, either party can call off an engagement and no harm, no foul, well, legally anyway. That cannot be done in biblical times. Betrothal was practically equal to marriage. The only way to end it would be to file for divorce, and the only reason to do so would be for adultery. I'll talk about this a little bit in my episode on Joseph. Joseph understood that if it became known that Mary was pregnant during their betrothal, then she could be stoned to death as an adulterer. Being a righteous and seemingly a very kind man, he decided that the best course of action would be to divorce her quietly and not do so publicly. 
However, God intervenes and tells Joseph to go ahead and marry Mary. In New Testament times, a betrothal was official when the groom gave the bride a gift, also called a matan, and said, quote, By this, thou art set apart for me according to the laws of Moses and of Israel. End quote. This started the time of betrothal, which normally lasted 12 months. During this time, the groom prepared a home for the new family, while the bride prepared the wedding clothes and the bride's family prepared the wedding festivities. Before getting to the wedding details, a common question is, how old were people when they got married? The rule of thumb is that girls were married as soon as they were able to bear children, usually around 13. Sometimes they might be older if there are a few eligible men at the time, such as in times of war. Men were expected to be married by 18, as at that point he would have learned a trade to support his family. Another interesting aspect is that men were exempt from military service while they were betrothed and early on in their marriage. So now the negotiations are done, the betrothal time is coming to an end, and it's time to have the wedding itself. First off, the wedding itself was not a religious event. Outside of a blessing, quote, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands, may your offspring possess the gates of their enemies, end quote. There were no other religious parts of the wedding. It wasn't until recently that a rabbi or priest were required to be in attendance. The marriage involved the drawing up and acceptance of a legal contract. The wedding did involve dressing up. The bride and groom were dressed in their best clothes, and the bride was adorned with jewels, either her own or borrowed. The girls who dressed her accompanied her as her companions, while the groom was accompanied by the friend of the bridegroom. The bride and groom looked and acted like a king and queen. After getting dressed up, the bridegroom with his friend went out in the evening to get his bride from her father's house. When they arrived, the whole procession went back to the groom's new home to start the festivities. The dark roadway would be lit with oil lamps held by wedding guests. In the parable told by Jesus, the bride and groom were later than expected and some people began to run out of oil. Only those who were prepared with extra oil were able to attend the wedding, as the others had to go get more oil and were locked out of the festivities. Along the way, there would be singing and dancing. It was a time of celebration for the whole village. Now, here's the kicker. The wedding feast lasted several days. The bride and groom entered under a canopy when they arrived at the house and presided over the feast. Much of the time was spent in eating and drinking. Keep in mind that the bride's family has been preparing for this for about a year. During the festivities, God's blessing was asked upon the couple. The men and women feasted separately from each other. So, let's take a look at the wedding in Cana, as described in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to attend the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. 
but you have kept a good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's take a look at some of the details. First, Jesus is there with some of his disciples. He may have been asked to be there to provide the blessing for the couple. Also, the belief is that it was the wedding of a family member, probably the bride's family. This is why Mary is so worried that they've run out of wine. If this is discovered, it would damage the family's reputation in the village. It's also possible that Mary was the one that was responsible for the preparations. How did Mary hear about the problem before anyone else? The women's feasting area was normally closer to the preparation area. She probably overheard some discussion by the master of the banquet as they tried to figure out what to do. Not knowing what to do, she tells her son. She may have just been passing along information, or maybe he, hoping he would help financially. Or maybe she was hoping for a miracle. We don't know. We do know Jesus' response in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. While it sounds harsh to our modern ears, it really isn't. He's using a title for a married woman, similar to our use of ma'am or, or madam. What about the rest of the verse? After doing research, it appears that Jesus is telling her that by doing this, he will start his path towards the cross. Mary may not completely understand and be focused on the here and now as she tells the servants to do whatever he says. He performs the miracle, and the wine is given to the master of the banquet. The wine was apparently so good that he tells the bridegroom that he doesn't understand why he waited until then to serve the wine, as most people serve the good wine first and the cheaper wine when people have been feasting for some time. How big were the stone water jars that Jesus used? They were between 20 to 30 gallons each, so between 120 to 180 gallons of wine. To compare to today's measurements, one gallon equals about five bottles of wine. So Jesus' miracle made somewhere between 24 and 36 bottles of wine. Basically, two to three cases. Before wrapping up this episode, there are a few random things I wanted to cover. First, let's talk about polygamy. Polygamy was actually very rare. The reason we hear so much about it in the Bible is because the men who practiced it were some of the key characters in these stories. We see polygamy more in the time of the patriarchs, and again at the monarchy. Polygamy was allowed so that if there were more women than men in a society, the women would not be stricken and pushed into poverty if something bad should happen. However, polygamy almost always had negative consequences. The vast majority of people in Israel were monogamous. Also, polygamy could be very expensive as the man had to provide for two wives. By New Testament times, polygamy is pretty much unheard of. Another thing I want to talk about is concubines. Yes, we see these in the Bible too. Again, they're pretty rare, and by New Testament times, they don't exist anymore. One website defines them as a secondary wife, but that's not really true either. They had rights and protections, but were not equal in status to a wife. Basically, her purpose was to provide a male heir if the wife was barren, or to provide more children in general to enhance the family's workforce and wealth. Again, you had to be wealthy in order to have a concubine. Personally, I think you see it among the monarchy as a status of power. How did someone become a concubine? There are a few ways. First, a free Hebrew woman could offer to become a concubine. If she was in a situation of dire poverty, she could offer to become a concubine for one man as opposed to becoming a prostitute. Another very rare practice was for a man to sell his daughter as a servant to another Hebrew. This was again probably done in very dire circumstances. 
While both of these may assault our modern sensibilities, keep in mind that as a servant and concubine, the man was required to provide for the woman for her life. It was actually a form of protection, so the woman would be taken care of in the society. Like with polygamy, you may see this happen more often in times of war when there are more women than men in a society. So that's it for this episode of the Bible Backdrop Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. If so, I would appreciate it if you leave a five-star rating and review. If you want to get in touch with me to talk about the show, you can email me at biblebackdrop at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you return for our next episode where we talk about weights, measures, and currency in Bible times. I know, it sounds dry, but I'll tie in a lot of Bible verses to make sense of it all. Until then, have a great week.